Well, we're slowing down a little bit on the podcast, and that's by design. I don't want to do these too often. Uh, Dearness gives everything its value, as Thomas Paine wrote in Common Sense. I think it was Common Sense. Or it might have been something else. I think it might have been the crisis, the American crisis. The summer soldier and the springtime patriot shirking their duty. It's dearness that it gives everything its value. So Thomas Paine's an interesting character. I'm a bit of a, an American revolutionary war buff. I grew up close to Valley Forge Park. I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. And as uh, I got older, as my family matured in age, uh, we came eastward uh, with my dad's job, of course. I didn't have a lot of uh, agency when I was young, as most, most kids don't. Uh, so I was born in St. Louis, lived in West Virginia for a few years, and then moved to Devon, Pennsylvania back in 1970. So I'm pretty much a Pennsylvanian, but I do have a smidgen of uh, West Virginia in me because we were there for three years. And I'm a Midwesterner by birth, born in St. Louis, the transition gateway to the West. I've always kind of seen myself as a person that can see a lot of different perspectives. And I think being born in, in St. Louis with it being the gateway, it's kind of a transition. For some reason, that's something I like to do. I like to think about when we change, uh, what changes with us, uh, how do we explore option and choices, how do we see other people's choices, how do we relate to other people's choices, and try to see it from other people's perspective. I'm opinionated, there's no doubt. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I didn't think I had something to say and share. So uh, that's true. I am definitely opinionated. I also like to uh, listen to other people's perspective and, and, and think about how it applies uh, to reality and how it applies to truth and uh, see if there's some need that I need to expand my awareness uh, or change something that I hold, hold to. I've noticed in the analytics from the last podcast, which was uh, Season 1, Episode 6, Soren Kierkegaard in Faith, that several, many new listeners have joined in, which is a pleasant surprise. So greetings to the places I saw. I think I saw in India. I think I saw Canada. Uh, I think I see, see some other countries, too. I didn't pay attention to it too much. But there are people listening from around the world, apparently. Uh, so... I appreciate that. Um, one thing I talked about in my previous podcast was telling my own stories. Now, I think you'll notice as you listen to me that I don't always put myself in the best light. I don't try to be too hard on myself, but I certainly try to admit when I've failed or made mistakes. And missing that job interview with the congressman uh, certainly got into that. It's not easy to talk about in one way. So I am narcissistic to a degree, but I also like to... Um, point out the things that have been difficult or challenging or where I blew it. And that's a weird kind of narcissism, I guess, because uh, usually narcissists are only talking about their greatest attributes. They're uh, real or imagined. They rarely ever admit uh, failings or failures. And I like to do that. Uh, my dad got a great kick af uh, off of me um, having a garden in my backyard in my previous, uh, pro previous property. And uh, the groundhogs... Uh, attacking my 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 garden even though I had fencing up they would go under the fence they even went over the fence so imagine this they have a fence around my garden it's probably 40 feet long 10 feet wide and whatever you know so it's it's a substantial fence and there's two pieces of fencing 
There's the stable bottom part, which is uh, hard to push into. And then there's, there's the uh, flexible top part of the fence, which is supposed to keep animals from gripping it because it's too, it's, too, um, it's too insecure. So it gets, them, it gets them to not want to be on that fence. Well, I was uh, enjoying my coffee one morning uh, in the great room, staring out at my garden, uh, the verdant uh, pastures of produce. And I saw a groundhog climb the fence, climb the stable bottom part, and then grab the top part and repel over it like an army, an army commando. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw, but I, I threw in the towel at that point. I said, the, the groundhog can climb the fence and repel right over it. What am I doing here? So I used to blog about it about a lot uh, on Beer Guard. I do have a blog called Beer Guard. I don't blog as much, that's for sure. I, I'm kind of moving in different directions right now. Uh, so I used to blog about my war with the groundhog. It was kind of like um, groundhogs. Uh, it was a family. It was kind of like Caddyshack with Bill Murray. You know, blow up the golf course to kill, to kill a, a groundhog or whatever the, whatever the f it was. Uh, but I used to blog about my wars against the groundhogs. My dad got the biggest kick out of it. Uh, so my uh, my perspective is I will try to be honest about my failings to some degree. I won't tell you everything that I've been through. That's personal to some degree, but I will also try to extol the positive things that I've done. I think there's a lot of good in what I've done in my life. I think there's some things that I'm not particularly proud of. There's some things that are kind of in the middle where I'm not sure I could have controlled it much more than I did, but the outcome still kind of sucked. And I certainly played a role in it, but it wasn't because of malice or sin that things went to hell. We can all relate to that. There's that great middle ground where we played a role but it doesn't mean we're entirely guilty. It doesn't mean the other people weren't responsible to some degree. And it takes wisdom to figure that out and to winnow that out and figure out what we were responsible for, what we could control, what we couldn't. So today we continue uh, the first upbuilding discourse, the expectancy of faith. And I'm going to try to process it. Uh, Soren is a very deep thinker, so it doesn't read easily. But just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's valuable. And I will try to keep this to about 21 minutes. That's the goal. Whether I achieve it or not, definitely worth wagering about because I'm not sure I can. So we talked about in the last episode the introduction to um, the faith uh, discourse, the first discourse in this book, which was first published as uh, Upbuilding Discourse 1 and 2, probably as a pamphlet or an essay separately and then at some point combined with all these other discourses to form a total of 18. Uh, Soren gets into that faith is a lot of times a faith in the future and what does that mean and we don't know the future but we wish people to have like a happy new year but in some sense it's really an act of faith to do that because we have no idea what's around the corner for them or us for that matter and uh, faith is one of those things that we wish good upon people but we really can't control it or can't predict it. Uh, those kind of things. So I'm just proceeding through this book, 18 Upbuilding Discourses, Soren Kierkegaard, edited and translated by Howard V. Hong and Edna H. Hong. And I am on page nine. This book is available on Amazon, and I think it's uh, about 80 bucks from what I saw. Uh, so it's called The Expectancy of pay, uh, Faith, page nine. Another thing that will happen in this podcast, if I make a mistake or I don't pronounce something correctly, I'm just going to let it be. Uh, I, I'm not going to go crazy about trying to correct everything. If I make a mistake, 
and I have to go back and correct something or I mispronounce something, I'll try to make it make it right in a, in a, in a, a next uh, next podcast. But this is going to have to be the way that it is. That's just the way it goes here. So this is on page nine. Uh, there's several paragraphs between the last part that I talked about uh, and this. As a matter of fact, many good things are talked about in uh, these sacred places, which is wishing somebody like a happy new year. i just add that parenthetically. There's talk of the good things of the, of the world, of health, happy times, prosperity, power, good fortune, a glorious fame, and we are warned against them. The person who has them is warned not to rely on them, and the person who does not have them is warned not to set his heart on them. About faith, there is a different type of talk or different kind of talk. It is said to be the highest good, the most beautiful, the most precious, the most blessed, blessed riches of all, not to be compared with anything else, and capable of being replaced. It is distinguished from the other good things that by being the highest but otherwise of the same kind as they are, transient and capricious, bestowed only upon the chosen few, rarely for the whole of life. Uh, I understand some of this. I think it's going to become clearer as we read through this. I don't want to take a too big a bite of Soren here and choke esophagus-wise. not be able to breathe because Soren has suffocated me. Um, he's, he's making the point though, when we wish like a happy new year to someone or good, good wishes on the new year or something equivalent to like happy birthday and have a fantastic year and all that stuff. We tend to see the, um, the, the that wish in the lines of prosperity, popularity, uh, like he was talking about power, good fortune, a glorious fame, health, happy times, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, then he makes the point that we're not to put our hope on those things. Uh, we're not to put our faith in those things because they're transient. They're passing. And faith is much more stable than that because faith doesn't get corroded by the world in terms of it becoming a, it's being a material thing that rusts or uh, rips or you know whatever that decay is. Everything that we have in this world in terms of material prosperity, whether in, in the body or in our possessions, we are going to lose those things ultimately, regardless of how long we live. We will at some point have to depart from them. So that's why Soren is reiterating what the scriptures talk about, that we're not to set our heart upon the world as it is because it is passing away. It's like tying our, our heart to something that is ultimately falling, you know, and we're going to fall with it if our soul is attached to it. Um, and we're also to not want those things ultimately like if we're poor or we're powerless or we don't have fame or notoriety uh, we shouldn't be too hungry to have those things uh, it's pretty common that people that do come from like a rag to riches story they come to realize usually at some point that the riches aren't all they're cracked up to be now, they could have a better appreciation for riches, maybe a more healthy perspective of it. But they also might have a very unhealthy perspective of all these things because of the absence. They, they made them bigger than they are. I would just mention off, kind of off on a tangent a bit, a friend of mine married a Filipino woman. And it's a good marriage. It's like they're really happy together. 
and it was kind of done over the internet. It's like one of these things that just turned out really beautifully. And she posted a documentary uh, about the history of the recent Philippines, you know, from like maybe World War II on at the conclusion of World War II. You know, the Philippines were decimated by the Japanese and, you know, America tried to stick its colonial foot in the Philippines and had some problems, you know, we wanted to kind of colonize them off the books after the war and that wasn't cool either. Um, but a big part of this documentary was the life of Imelda Marcos, who was the uh, wife of Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator of the Philippines. And the story wasn't only about her, but I, I applaud the documentarian, the people that made this documentary, that they gave Imelda Marcos and her children and the opposition and various voices in the Philippines a really open microphone to talk about what they experienced under the reign of Ferdinand Marcos and Imelda as his Evita figure, like Evita Perón, don't cry for me, Argentina type of stuff. And she was very poor when she was a child. Uh, I think she, her parents had money. Her mom passed away when she was eight or nine. And so things became more difficult. And I think the, I think her dad had remarried or had been married before and Imelda basically had a loss of, you know, uh, comfort and stability through the loss of her mother. And she saw herself as the mother figure of the Philippines, but she really set her heart on being powerful, on being prestigious, meeting world leaders. Apparently her husband, this is her words, would send her away to visit all these other countries because he was afraid of an uprising or a rebellion when he was absent, when in fact he was... He was banging his mistress, uh, but Imelda said it was because he was afraid of um, his uh, his regime being overthrown. That's why he wouldn't leave the Philippines, but it came out, she's not completely honest about that, that he was banging a mistress, many of them, matter of fact, when she was out gavelating around the world, uh, shaking the hands of world leaders, etc., etc. Uh, but she's a smart lady, man. Whew. Then I never realized that she uh, she was so calculating. And she's still alive, and she has a son that's trying to uh, become the president of the Philippines. And there are people that really love love the Marcoses, despite the past. You know, uh, there's there's a lot of people that want to see them come back into power in the in the Philippines, and then plenty of people that don't. So that's a very interesting contrast. But she really set her heart on being uh, being wealthy, and she absconded, and her husband did, with a lot of uh, Filipino wealth that came through the United States, essentially, to keep the Philippines from becoming communist. We poured a lot of U.S. aid into the Philippines, and they generated some money on their own, and the Marcoses became billionaires in the process and impoverished their country, so that's a fact. And she bought artwork and buildings in New York City, etc. But she set her heart upon those things. And it's just interesting to see her, you know, regain some of her prior status and try to re refurbish the family name to some degree. But she has definitely lost 95% of what she had previously. And it, and it it's kind of sad in a way that she's still holding on to that as a, as a, as a, as a goal. So Soren would tell Imelda Marcus and tell all of us that if you have these things, don't set your heart upon them. If you don't have these things, don't set your heart upon them because they will ultimately not be the major issue and the major thing that you have to worry about. Jesus said in the Bible, uh, it's a put in the Bible, but he said it, 
What shall profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his very soul? And what should he give in exchange for his soul? I mean, that is a harsh teaching that anything that you exchange in the world for your soul, like, you know, if you become a dishonest person or an abusive person or an overly angry person or a prejudiced person, anything that darkens your soul, that takes a piece of your soul and trades it for something in the world, uh, you have bargained in a very bad way, even though it looks temporarily like a great thing that you did. You gained something back, but the thing that you gained, you can't hold on to, and ultimately is going to condemn us. So Soren is uh, really, really um, hammering this home. And as we continue through this chapter, the expectancy of faith, he will get into what is that faith that's like gold, you know, that's above the tarnishment of the world, uh, eternal gold, eternal uh, riches. Um, maybe using the word gold is even not the right word to use because gold will pass away just like everything else. And I was at a party uh, over Christmas, and it was weird because, uh, you know, we're starting to get back into some normalcy from COVID. And uh, I went to a Christmas party. It was fairly s small in attendance, intentionally so. But I was hanging out with people I didn't know real well, and we're having some interesting conversation. I'm a thoughtful person. So, you know, if I get invited to go to a party from a certain host, I, I have a tendency to assume the people that get invited to the party are pretty cool because the host is cool, right? So they're not going to invite jerks or people I wouldn't have a natural affinity with and for even if i don't know them and i went to this party it was it was really great it was really engaging and uh, i was talking to a couple of people and this one girl made a, a woman made a good point uh that you know the word for like um putting our faith in something passing in the scriptures is like it's passing away you know like it's sand through our hand and it, it's a different view of like the material world than just typically like fundamentalists the fundamentalists get into like this neoplatonic Manichaean, if you don't know those words, look them up. Like the material world is evil. Like, you know, that's a Manichaean view. And that was like Augustine's prior belief system before becoming a Christian. It still influenced his theology to some extent, especially with sexuality. There's no doubt. Um, and there's reasons to be wary of, of the material world. Like, again, if we exchange ourselves for it, that's a bad trade. And it's an eternal trade that has dire consequences. Yet the world is not intrinsically evil, if that makes any sense. Like having riches is not intrinsically evil. It's the love of riches, which is evil. Um, you know, having power is not intrinsically evil. It's the human heart that doesn't know how to handle power. Um, having fame is not an evil, but having fame for the wrong reasons or using that fame in a destructive way is the evil part. And faith is uh, the ability, you know, it takes... Let's just put it this way to kind of sum things up as we get closer to 21 minutes here. It takes faith to handle prosperity just as much as it takes faith to handle adversity because it's very easy to go wrong when things are going our way. And just imagine like riding fast on a bike and then hitting a stick or a stone. You know, the faster you're going, the more momentum you have, the more dangerous a, a stumble or a trip or a a rock is going to be because of a, you have a great amount of speed. And uh, that's kind of what riches and power and fame can become because of human nature. If everything's going our way, uh, when something doesn't go our way or we have an ethical lapse, it can be super, super destructive because of our inability to slow down our speed, our momentum, whatever it is, it's going to carry us into the pavement. 
And so how the mighty have fallen, right? If you're a poor person, you're a nameless person, a faceless person to anybody but God, maybe your family, you don't have far to fall. That's just the way it goes. Uh, you know, we all pass away and we might have an obituary in the paper and that's about it. I have no illusions that my work is going to live on forever. Yeah, maybe I'll be Soren Kierkegaard too. Bierkegaard. I know Soren's happy. Somebody's talking about him. The only podcast on the freaking internet that's exclusively about Soren Kierkegaard. And I was the one that stumbled upon it like a dumbass. I just happen to love his writing. And I'm happy that you've joined me in this particular affair. And I will continue to go on as long as I have something to say. Uh, it's good to see people joining in. And I will try to figure out now why the Apple podcast is not showing it and why it's inconsistent on Google. I will do that next. So that's the goal. But it's good chatting with everybody. I, uh, figuratively speaking, hallelujah, amen. We're at 21 minutes. Good morning here. It's Friday morning here in Pennsylvania. Uh, greetings across the world. Uh, I did check a little bit more specifically of who's listening. Canada, Turkey, Bolivia, and India. You know who you are. There's not a thousand listeners out there, but if you are from that country and you patched in, welcome and thank you for listening. I want to explain something real briefly in terms of my own style and my weaknesses as an expositor, pontificator. Sometimes I make uh, cognitive connections to things and I assume that people will understand how my brain works, which is pretty suspicious because my brain works in, in odd ways and make connections between things. So yesterday I was talking about how uh, I'm willing to talk about things that don't necessarily put me in the best light, usually with a humorous angle and recognizing there are things that I just won't talk about because they're far too personal. And I mentioned groundhogs as an example of that. Now, let me explain a little bit more <laughs> what I meant about talking about the groundhogs and why that doesn't put me in the best light or at least reveals something about me. You know, at the time that I uh, was having the battles, uh, battle royale with the groundhogs in my garden, in my previous uh, domicile, my previous house, uh, it was a large garden uh, secured by a fence, if you listened to yesterday's podcast. That wasn't doing any good because groundhogs, once they zero in on your property and they know there's food there, they'll do anything to get into the into the uh, garden. Um, they're a creature of habit. So the trick is to keep a groundhog from seeing and experiencing the garden firsthand. Because once they do and they mow down your garden or begin to mow down your garden, there's nothing stopping them. They're like a nuclear weapon. They will destroy what you have, leave nothing standing, and move on. And why I mentioned the groundhogs and, uh, and why I blogged about them so much is it, just the futility of it all. Uh, you know, having a garden, you know, kale and uh, broccoli and Brussels sprouts. I don't think I had broccoli, actually. I had Brussels sprouts. I thought no animal in the world would eat. Excuse me for a second. I had to blow my nose. I told you yesterday that this is warts and all, man. Sometimes when I drink coffee in the morning... It uh, loosens my sinuses for some reason. So I had uh, I had Brussels sprouts, and I remember growing Brussels sprouts when I was a kid, and nothing would touch the Brussels sprouts. I mean, they're just not 
attractive, and I eat them primarily for nutrition. If I eat them at all, so I grew them one year. <laughs> and the groundhogs mowed down the Brussels sprouts even before they were Brussels sprouts growing. It was just just the plant, and they they took it down to a nub. They amputated my plants. Can you believe it? And I I I, I was just uh, you know I was in a doctoral program, you know pursuing a, a PhD studies at Temple, you know fairly cerebral you know, absent-minded professor type of way. And, uh, you know, trying to change the world in my own limited sphere of helping students prepare for college, which I wrote a book about called On the Edge. On the Edge, Transitioning Imaginatively to College. So you can look that up if you'd like. It sold actually pretty well in India, believe it or not. Uh, my own students thought it wasn't that great, apparently. Some did. Uh, but, you know, when you're when you're in town, people just think you're... Uh, just an average Joe. It's people from the outside that think you have more expertise. Maybe. Who knows? So I, I got into writing about the groundhog a lot because I just was like, there's nothing I can do. It's just uh, the furies, the furry furies of a groundhog or groundhogs are just destroying my garden. And absent of just going out there with a, you know, a rifle or a shotgun and trapping every one of them and killing them, there's not a lot I can do, and it just, uh, you know, just became this futility of, like, this Sisyphus thing of trying to protect my garden against these uh, these ravenous beasts. And the futility that I felt in doing so and just how it humbled me and how it just battered me. And it was fairly simple. It wasn't the end of the world, but it, it just was so aggravating that the, the groundhogs are just this chronic problem in my garden. I finally just gave up having a garden. I probably should have gone underneath the shed and uh, and drew them out. I did have a trap, but it was fairly brutal to um, to take them out. You had to put a bolt in their head. Unless you take a groundhog and move them about 10 miles away from the original location, they will find their way back to where you are. Uh, they have an extraordinary intelligence in some ways and some pretty massive stupidity in other ways. Like it's not, It doesn't make a lot of sense to destroy a garden, like eat enough to get your fill, but don't kill the plants in the process. Uh, groundhogs don't have that intelligence. They'll just annihilate everything. So I want to get into why the groundhogs became kind of the face of this futility, this trouble that life offers. I had other troubles at the time. And I kind of made light of it, I guess, or I had fun with it because I didn't know what else to do. It was driving me crazy. And uh, if you look at the original image of this podcast, it's a, it's a Soren Kierkegaard quote with his face that said, Trouble is the common denominator of living. It is the great equalizer. And uh, I love that quote. Uh, Soren uh, pretty much says that everybody has trouble. That's just the way it rolls. If you live, you have trouble. And Jesus says the same thing in John sixteen thirty three. Now, John's a very compact book in the Bible. Whereas the other Gospels get into Jesus' life from infancy or childhood, even though it omits large sections of it, it does have like a birth narrative in most cases. Uh, you know, I think the three other Gospels do. Um, and Mark was like the first that was written down because that came from Peter. Peter um, dictated the Gospel that he remembered the sayings of Jesus and the timelines to Mark. And Mark was the one that wrote them down. I'm not sure Peter, at least initially, was strong in Greek. He may have learned more about Greek as he got older, and his other his other um, epistle or his epistles, and were were penned by him. So you know the uh, 
the apostles maybe weren't learned men to start with, but they became learned. And people that don't think that's possible don't know anything about human nature and human intelligence. They tend to have chronological snobbery, as we say, as if a fisherman couldn't learn Greek. Uh, he could, and he did, and he wrote in uh, the Greek of the time. So uh, Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three, uh, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And that's kind of an amalgamation of different um, different versions of the, of that text. Uh, I like the combination of words there. In this world you will have trouble. Jesus promises trouble. He promises as a function of living that you will have trouble. But they also kind of balances out with this this uh, hopeful expect, expectancy based on his own triumph over over death and the cross, is be of good cheer. You know, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, the world dished it out to Jesus. We we tend to focus on the on the on the crucifixion, of course, because that's the culmination of the hostility of the world towards truth, Jewish and Roman. And by that, it's the whole world, because the Jewish world and the Roman world at that time was, you know, pretty much the Mediterranean and, and, then, and then some. But uh, it's an example of how the Gentiles and the Jews were both against the truth, and they nailed him to a cross. And you can't keep the truth down. The truth eventually will, will, will set you free and set the person free. So Jesus is speaking uh, for himself, first of all. Uh, you know, in this world you will have trouble. Uh, from the very start he had trouble. His life was full of trouble. Uh, and it culminated in the crucifixion. But, you know, he was misunderstood by his family, and derided by his enemies, made fun of, laughed at, mocked, and even ignored, which is probably the worst thing of all, is just being ignored. If you have a message that's going to save the world and people are like ho-hum, Thanks a lot, but I'm not interested. And they go about their way. That has to grieve the heart of God more than anything. It's just the apathy. And we say the opposite of hatred is not, or the opposite of love is not hatred. It's apathy, which is a, a hardened type of non-love that you can't do anything with. So Jesus says in this world, you will have trouble. You will have groundhogs that will eat your garden. The groundhogs don't give a give a hoot one way or another. They they're just looking to fill their tummy. They're they're not looking at some kind of existential conflict or something. Yet I did because the garden was a, a sense of the world for me, and it's a place where I get health and nourishment and encouragement, and just to have it mowed down by a bunch of animals willy nilly uh, was just so destructive. I, cu I couldn't I couldn't handle it. Uh, but Jesus talks about, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we can base our hope on that, that Jesus dealt with the world on its own terms and its hostility and its anger and its um, hatred and apathy and took it on, you know, willingly with open arms, literally. And the world took its best shot. You know, the forces of evil, the devil and his minions and his human agents took their best shot and uh, they wound up being defeated so Jesus knows more about trouble than you, me, or anyone else would ever know. Uh, he not only took that abuse from humanity, uh, Christian theology teaches that Jesus took the wrath of God too. And that's not a popular viewpoint these days, the substitutionary death of Jesus in our place. But the Gospels teach that, and Paul teaches that, and every epistle teaches that in one way or another. Jesus is not just an example. He is our Redeemer. He redeemed us from the power of death. He took our place. Uh, that is classical Christian reform theology. And if you don't believe that, you're off 
on a historical anomaly because that's not that's not what the gospels and what the epistles and what the other books of the bible teach from beginning to end <clears throat> and uh that uh thomas Paine quote did come out of uh, the american crisis uh these are the times that try men's souls and then he kind of derides the sunshine patriot and what Thomas Paine is getting into at that point, and I had talked about Thomas Paine recently in the last podcast, and I didn't really explain it. Like a lot of times it's just like spontaneous thoughts come to my mind, and I put out fragments of, uh, of references, but I don't fully explain them because maybe I don't know them. And that's part of why, what I'm doing here. I don't try to make this thing so polished. So you have to kind of ride along, and I'll rectify uh, incomplete statements or incorrect statements and and following podcasts that's what i promised to do yesterday and i wasn't intending to do a podcast today frankly but i'm encouraged a bit that people from all over the world are patching in and so i wanted to um, follow this up with just some thoughts um but these are the times that try men's souls and, and thomas Paine is talking about uh you know when the when the conflict gets hard when the troubles mount you know, the people that had joined the cause start to disappear. And that's what's happening with Russia right now in the Ukraine. You know, they took on a, a very unwise battle with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians have nothing to lose. They don't want to be under the boot of Putin. There's a lot of historical reasons for that, including including the Hol- Holmodor, which is the farce, uh, forced starvation of millions of Ukrainians during World War, before World War II. It was by Stalin in the 1930s because the Ukrainians resisted communism. They re- resisted uh, collectivization. And so uh, Stalin decided to starve them out, and millions died. And that's a historical fact, and that's why the Ukrainians fight right now. They haven't forgotten. That was their grandparents, you know, most of the grandparents are great-grandparents. And there's probably still some people alive that went through that. You know, my gran- uh, my uh, grandfather fought in World War One. I'm 58 years old, so I had historical knowledge of World War One from the German perspective, and I'm still living in 2022. And so there's a lot of Ukrainians that heard from the grandparents or the great-grandparents what it was like to live in the Ukraine in the 1930s when Stalin and his henchmen came and took away their farms, destroyed the productivity, and starved out millions of people. That's why they fight. And Putin's claim and Russia's claim to the Ukraine is, is baloney because uh, they lost that right, just like the South lost the right to... Uh, you know, declaring, uh, you know, secession. You don't have a right to do that. That wasn't part of the original agreement. Any contract requires both parties to agree. And the union was supposed to be uh, perpetual. And there's a way for states to leave the union, and it's by the acts of the union. And if, uh, this, if the North had agreed to let the South leave, then that's fine. So a lot of these things have to be resolved on the battlefield. You know, there's only so far diplomacy and negotiation get. It, it becomes a bloody fight. And the Ukrainians don't have anything to lose. They refuse to be part of the of the Russian hegemony. And they're going to fight till the end. And it's going to be grandparents and grandkids and women and men. And, you know, they're going to throw everything they have at the Russians. And the Russians are either going to become entirely brutal, brutal which is their typical technique. The, the Russians beat the Nazis by throwing human bodies in front of bullets and bombs until the Nazis freaking ran out of ammunition. And that's what's going to happen now. But it's on the other shoe. The, uh, you know, the Russians are good defensive fighters, but offensively, they're historically on very, very thin ice if they try to make the case that Ukraine belongs to Russia. They lost that right. They forfeited that right when the Holmodor was executed and then the Soviet bloc came down and, and made all those Eastern European countries 
um, part of the uh, satellite to uh, to uh, the Soviet Union in Moscow. And, uh, you know, Putin conveniently doesn't want to acknowledge that fact. He's a fan of Stalin, a former KGB agent that he is. Uh, so probably what's going to happen is that Russia is going to destroy the Ukraine in order to save it in their own mind. They will literally turn it into a sender, uh, a parking lot. And that's what I'm afraid is going to happen. I don't think they'll use nuclear weapons. I don't think they have to. But they might. Who knows? Uh, but they're going to have a hard time occupying, occupying the Ukraine because the Ukraine is going to be resistant to the last man. Anybody who is not up for the fight has already left, and the ones that remain are up for the fight, and there's nothing, there's nothing left to lose. You don't put people in a corner, and uh, we have to avoid doing that to Russia. We have to give them a way out, and I don't know how we do it because they've overcommitted and have created a massive humanitarian crisis. And they can't solve the problem that they've unleashed. Uh, they're not capable. Their military is pretty, uh, pretty ineffective, too. It just shows that uh, if it came down to a fight in conventional warfare between uh, the United States and uh, Russia, we would kick their, kick their butt. It wouldn't even be close because we have a lot of experience of taking on several unwise wars in the last 20 years. So our military forces is, is, might be fatigued, but it's a lot better tactically and strategically and equipment-wise than the, the Russians are. Taking a sip of coffee right now. So trouble. Uh, you know, COVID, last two years, very, very uh, historically the case that uh, it's not something that we in the West have dealt with recently since the flu pandemic of, uh, you know, the 1920s or 1910 19, to 20s. Uh which indirectly actually created some of the issues of uh, the Versailles Treaty, uh, where uh, Wilson had gotten very sick and then had a stroke, but he had that he had that flu, and he wasn't in a strong place physically, emotionally, and psychologically when they were negotiating the surrender terms of the armistice in World War One. Nobody officially won, but with the United States coming into the fight and siding with the um, with uh, England, Britain, and France. <clears throat> and against Germany specifically, uh, the terms that Clemenceau uh, from France imposed upon the Germans was, were very harsh and actually created the seabed for Hitler. Um, and uh, Woodrow Wilson was in an infirm state at that point. It was not capable of pushing back. The only thing he got was the League of Nations, but everything else basically created the pushback for World War II because Hitler said they had been betrayed, which was kind of true. A lot of times, uh, tyrants and dictators and uh, you know demonic uh, personalities will use a, a part of truth to build a case, and that was the great um, piece of truth that Hitler uh, built the rise of Nazism on: is that we'll never be in a situation again where we'll be betrayed by our own people or people that are supposedly Germans, J uh, Jews, and liberals, and Weimar Republic, and all those people, not true Germans. It sounds very familiar with what Putin's doing in Russia right now. There's impure Russians who are not part of the motherland. They're Western imposters or lackeys, et cetera, et cetera. So trouble. My grandparents went through World War I. My, uh, my grandmother, as a civilian, uh, you know, had to eat turnips for like a year and a half to survive. And she loved turnips, apparently. I always thought she hated turnips. Uh, but she loved turnips because they were a lifeline to um, nutrition and, and sustenance in a time when food was very scarce. And my grandfather fought for the Germans and, you know, and said that he knew the war was over when he could only fire one shell for every 10 that came at him. 
they were actually under strict orders to not not shoot their their ammunition because they didn't have a lot left and so he had to wait and i think he had to count until he had 10 artillery uh and artillery shots at him personally in his position before he could retaliate <laughs> and he knew the war was over when that happened and the united states was the um was the factor that changed all that anyway i'm way off on a tangent here getting close to 21 minutes which is my promise cutoff point so soren talks about trouble is the common denominator of living it is the great equalizer I don't know where that's from specifically. I just saw that as a meme, and I uh, took a screenshot of it, and I posted it as the uh, pictorial representation of this podcast. And uh, I have to track that down, which, which one of his writings uh, that appeared. And it might be this 18 Upbuilding Discourses. I have no idea how to find that. <clears throat> so if you have trouble, uh, that's a common denominator. You have a card that life deals to everybody. Uh, the issue is what do you do with the trouble? How do you make sense of it? And sometimes you can't, but how do you have faith that God is working in that trouble uh, to make you what he wants you to be? Uh, sometimes it's hard to figure out. Uh, there's a lot of injustice in this world. There's children that get sexually abused. There's wives that get beaten. There are mass starvations. There's disease. There's car wrecks. There's uh, people that impose their destruction on other innocent parties. And it's too uh, facile to say, well, you know, that's just the way it goes. No, there's an injustice that needs to be rectified. And Jesus' death and resurrection only is a promise that God will rectify all wrong over time. Uh, It doesn't mean it happens all at once. It happens as a process. It's an event, but it's also a process. Uh, And God promises in eternity that all these things will be straightened out, and those that have imposed evil upon others will pay a price eternally for doing so it's not annihilation it's conscious literal suffering forever according to traditional uh, christian teaching that may sound sound harsh but what's the alternative that you let when we let people that do great harm to others escape the wrath of god is that just no it's not so i will end on that note today uh and it's 2105 god bless thank you for listening and i will See you again sometime soon. Uh, try to keep it within 21 minutes. And thanks for, thanks for your listen.